So for today's guests, we have the brilliant Carla Giddings and Sarah Abdo. Carla and Sarah are both occupational therapists and co-chairs for the Occupational Justice for Newcomers Network, which is a Canadian Association for Occupational Therapists practice network. Carla is pursuing a PhD in geography for which she will be conducting doctorate level research exploring experiences of care and belonging through the private sponsorship of refugees program. Sarah is an instructor at the Dalhousie School of Occupational Therapy and began her career in refugee resettlement. Both of them are passionate about supporting refugees and empowering newcomers. Thanks again for joining us, Carla and Sarah. Thank you for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. We're happy to have you. So a lot of our listeners tuning in right now are students, new graduates or new occupational therapy professionals who will soon start delving into professional practice. So we wanted to have a discussion about the ideas and the resources that helped you be the amazing OTs you are today in supporting refugees and newcomers with disabilities with chronic conditions. Um, so we're going to ask you to think back to when you were just starting out your career in OT. So you were new grads, fresh out of school. And so if you can both reflect back on when you were first delving into professional practice, what resources helped you out the most? I, I um, if I if I can start, um, I think very much so of the faces of the people that I um, got to serve. Um, so the the newcomers themselves for me were the primary resource uh, that I needed in order to understand the context of my work um, and to to appreciate where my work can go and how I can best provide uh, supports and services. So, you know, thinking about our profession, we pride ourselves in being able to appreciate and understand the holistic nature of a person um, and also um, pride ourselves in, in, you know, acknowledging the importance and the wealth that comes from um, hearing the narratives of, of persons with lived experience. So, they, I would say, would be my primary resources. I also found myself referring quite heavily and funny enough back to the course materials of the program and reading the, the textbooks and the literature that we were asked to to kind of review throughout the program. It's just taking another look at it for a second time in, the, in that new context, in that new light, it made me think, where where was all of this knowledge like literally while I was in the program why don't I remember reading this article or why is it that I didn't realize that the faculty member that was in front of me was actually a pioneer in this topic area um so I kind of found myself chuckling a little bit I I think I was a nerd in in OT school um but even then there were a lot of things that slipped through the cracks um and then the final group um in terms of resource development um I I thought a lot and relied a lot on my interprofessional network. Of course, when you're a new grad, it takes some time before you develop that network. Um, and it depends on how much of that work you put into developing an interprofessional network while you're in the program. But uh, colleagues in, in you know, psychology, for instance, or in um, social work were people that I really looked up to and, and allowed me to engage in a lot of um, discussion and to balance bounce some ideas off of um you know they challenge my clinical reasoning a little bit more um so i i think of people when i think of resources more than anything 
Yeah, I really agree with what you're saying, Sarah. Um, so different to, to Sarah, when she started out in, in practice in refugee resettlement, um, I my work was initially in a role emerging placement and student accessibility at a trade program at a college. Um, so what I drew on a lot when I was starting out was really thinking um, back to how am I going to explain the role of OT in this context when working with students that have maybe never heard of OT, working with administrators and managers that weren't really sure what the OT role was. Um, so I really drew a lot on the PEO model um, and that was really helpful for, for me. Um, and it seemed like something that was like quite intuitive for for people that uh, are first learning about occupational therapy to really connect with that. Um, and something else that was helpful for me was uh, the COPM, um, so the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure. And what was so helpful about that was that it's much more holistic. Um, and I, I know we can get in a little bit more about um, maybe some of the complexities and the different resources that we that we initially gravitated to, because um, there were definitely some pieces that were, were challenging with, with both of these um, approaches and resources. So those were, were some of the pieces that were really, really helpful for me. Um, similar to what Sarah said was, was always drawing on the experiences of the, the clients that I was so fortunate to be working with. Um, that was really, really important. And through that, through all the work that, that I've done, so I've done work in different practice settings, so um, accessibility in, in colleges, um, community mental health, working in a psychiatric hospital, and then now more recently doing research with, with newcomers and people with refugee backgrounds. What's been really important is to come back to what has been foundational for me is, is occupational justice. And, mm -hmm. and what, what does that mm -hmm. mean? Um, and so coming back to Wilcock and Townsend's definition of occupational justice mm -hmm. and, and seeing how does that play out in the context in which I'm working and what is my role in terms of collaborating with, with the people that I'm working with. Uh, I think it's really, see these are the important conversations that I think need to be amplified and highlighted because um, when someone thinks of a resource, they might think of that tangible piece of paper or document, but in reality, uh, it's the real life experiences and people that um, you guys are so lucky to interact with in order to provide you with the necessary information on how to uh, better enable, you know, meaningful occupations or how to better uh, enable change or advocate for this group. Um, so I, I really appreciate um, that, that insight into how we can think of resources differently and and look at them in different ways um, so thank you thank you for sharing that I have another question uh, that I think ties in really well to this is what what would you say makes a resource like like a good useful practical um, resource in relation to um, newcomers and justice I think, you know, thinking of the context in which I began, I was in a non-for-profit agency um, doing refugee resettlement. So for me, um, you know, 
first and foremost, was it accessible to me? Um, and, you know, did I have to pay for it? Was it something that was affordable that my organization could cover that I um, thought was valuable enough you know, to purchase. And if we think about the, the value um, behind something, it's more around whether or not that resource can translate into different contexts. So, you know, if you think about your training to date, you could be able to um, find something that is developed in the community or in a non-for-profit, or you could find some uh, body of work or literature from internal to the profession or external to it, but it's up to you to put the OT lens um, on it, right? And to see how it applies within your training. Um, So I found that a lot of the times I struggled to find resources that either were accessible to me um, or translated into the context and the culture um, of my workplace. So I think those were some pretty um, preliminary questions that I would mm-hmm. ask. The other thing that I found I needed a little bit more uh, from some of the resources, you know, we, we tend to, to be very process oriented sometimes. Um, and and that's that's great. And there is some value um, in having, you know, a little bit of a flow chart or a flow map to guide the work that we do. But that's not necessarily always going to be available because of the diversity and the intersectionality that occurs with different um, practice areas and, and with different um, populations. So all of this to say, you know, there it, it I never found one thing that I felt was the most practical or useful, I had to take pieces um, from a number of different resources and different types of resources um, to create something that fit mm-hmm. for me and for the mm-hmm. clients. Mm-hmm. I, I would agree with that, Sarah. I think something that uh, comes to mind for me when I'm thinking about the types of resources that I might be using, um, and, I, and I wasn't always able to articulate this, um, but having attended the CAOT virtual conference this year, um, uh, Marilyn Cognier had a, a really great piece where she was um, discussing, you know, how do you look through maybe maybe an assessment and had an example. And one of the, the reflection questions that really jumped out at me was thinking about who does this serve? So um, I've had the experience in work settings where I've thought, you know what, maybe this assessment is actually serving the organization that I'm working for, or it's helping me to be more efficient in doing my assessment, but is this actually serving the person that I'm working with? So so I think that that's a question that's really important. Um, so is it um, a resource that is respectful of, of the client that I'm working with, the person that I'm, that I'm connecting with? Um, is it is it going to be representative of their their lived experience? Um, something else that I think is really important is thinking about if it's clear about what are the power dynamics behind that resource. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if if it's making assumptions about the type of lifestyle that that person has, if it's assuming that you know you must be working in an office job and then you go home and 
you go to the gym and you prepare your dinner and you have these types of leisure occupations, if it, if it sort of makes these assumptions that come from a specific social location that often might be connected to ideas about class and race um, and, and culture and, and other intersecting factors, but it's not clear about where it's coming from, then that's something that I, I would start to ask questions mm-hmm. about. Um, I would also want to be thinking about, is it, is it expressing or giving an opportunity to think through the, the power dynamics that happen in the relationship with, with the person that you're mm-hmm. working with? Um, so, so these are some things that I, that I think about quite a bit in terms of working with, with newcomers and, mm-hmm. and refugees. Um, the research that I'm engaging in now, um, part of it is doing a process of care mapping. And what I find helpful about that is that it's, it's flexible and it is something that's collaborative and it's directed by the person who has the lived experience themselves instead of trying to artificially place a an assessment sort of on top of somebody's lived experience and then make mm-hmm. it fit mm-hmm. um, so so that's something that are some of the pieces that are kind of bouncing around my my head when i'm when i'm thinking about is this a helpful resource um or do i need to you know be more critical about this do i have the potential to create harm by using this or um maybe create strain in the therapeutic relationship if I if I use this particular mm-hmm. resource. If I can share kind of a bit of a narrative that complements I think what Carla's saying and I think back to um, a case that I was working on alongside a few providers external to my organization and it was a, a situation uh, that was primarily focused in the mental health context Um, And the person uh, who was doing the assessment um, was using a tool, again, similar to what Carla's mentioning, that, you know, is is a standard tool used for every initial um, within that particular organization and within that particular health team. And we had um, an interpreter with us in the room as well. And then there's myself just as a support person. And because the person had, had trusted me and asked me to be there, Um, And I happened to speak the same language as as the individual who was being assessed at the time. The the tool was in the checklist format and uh, the responses were more closed and or the questions themselves were more closed ended. Mm -hmm. But the client themselves was responding with a narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, And because the interpreter needed to um, interpret into English what the narrative was um, and there was a, l- a little bit of a lag and and uh, a bias almost on the on the side of the evaluator um, the response to the question was missed every single time so for example you know the question could have been something like um, do you do you have anxiety and the person understood the question and said you know I worry uh, routinely on how I'm going to be able to do things on my own. I worry about my children, how I'm going to care, care for them, and, and started to really describe the worries that they have, which could in themselves translate to being a, a simple yes to the question around anxiety, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and the person was completely dismissive of that response. 
Yeah. Um, so kind of any tool that's out there, think about how is it going to be understood by the person in front of you? Is there going to be a language component that impacts the understanding of, of what it is that you are presenting or asking and also what the person is, is saying in response? And are you closing your mind to the response because it's not given in a, a, a traditional mm-hmm. way? So. Mm. We have to think about resources, the resources that we select in that way, especially when we're thinking about assessments. But we also need to be open to accepting resources that are non-traditional, right? You know, in the Western world, we're taught to focus on Mm -hmm. rigor um, and, and, you know, is there a Cochrane review that is attached to whatever it is that I want to learn more about? Or, um, and, and there is value to doing that, but, you know, Bright Simmons is a person that I kind of reflect and, and, and think of often, um, who is an ideas activist. Um, and the way that he describes what an ideas activist is, is that he believes that any idea, no matter where it's coming from, who it's coming from, um, has a right to see the, the light of day. So. Um, when we think about our resources, I think we need to be a lot more open-minded as a mm-hmm. profession, um, especially when we're working with newcomers, when we're working with people of different kind of backgrounds, experiences, cultures, etc. Um, but we can still think critically about them and more um, be open to hearing it and, and learning from mm-hmm. it first, and then go into the level of rigor that you need and the, the critical analysis, yeah. right? But, but we're so quick to shut resources out right from the get-go just because it's oh it's great literature or oh it's it's not something that's published it's it's something that i heard yeah, from someone yeah. right yeah no i definitely think you're right about that like even just reflecting on what we've learned in school about assessments like we talk a lot about reliability validity clinical utility but we i think we are missing those more human aspects to thinking about what resources you're using what um, assessments are you using and are they respectful do they represent lived experience because it's really important and that example Sarah that you were sharing um, really touches on how these cultural differences can result in inequities mm-hmm. so I think that ties nicely with the next question we have for you which is what are some challenges that you came across when finding choosing and using certain resources I can start off yeah, go with, ahead. with that. Um, I'm I'm trying to figure out where to start. <laughs> um, I, I think something that maybe maybe a clear example is is because I, I do use the the COPM fairly frequently in, in the mental health work that I do. I find that it can be really helpful in terms of having like open-ended questions and it helps to, to structure an, an initial assessment. Um, something really interesting about it is is the way that it's kind of structured in terms of leisure, productivity, and, and self-care. Um, and while I, I appreciate the, the more holistic component of it, what some stumbling blocks that I've run into is when I have worked with with people who work in agriculture and who are farmers mm-hmm. um, or come from rural backgrounds. And this idea of having these strict divides between um, these different categories, um, how that, that just doesn't work for, 
for some people. So the idea of, you know, your your leisure is separate from your productivity, is separate mm-hmm. from your self-care. And um, that, that that just, you can't sort of overlay that on on everybody's lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's one piece that that comes to mind for me. And and I think part of that is is really engaging in this like critical reflexivity and and understanding what are both our, our insights as occupational therapists and, and as an individual occupational therapist and where you're coming from, but then also becoming more and more aware through our interactions with all these amazing people we get to work with. What are what are our oversights? And becoming more mm-hmm. more aware of that. Sarah, would you like to um, share anything on that regard? I'm I'm just thinking, you know, from the finding side of things, um, and this goes back to, you know, some of the conversations that we've had around who owns knowledge. Um, and it goes back again to the concept that we're being asked to pay for a lot of the knowledge that's out there. And there is some value in that. I mean, you know, some people's form of employment is in creating these resources. So by all means, I, I am not um, suggesting that everything should always be free. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that would, that would um, cause some challenge. But I think there are certain types of resources that should be accessible uh, to Mm -hmm. all. I worry that sometimes when, you know, we develop resources that we're asking people to pay a little bit uh, more potentially than than they can afford. Um, And it's, again, not meant to, to create some sort of a system where I'm saying, you know, this resource is more valuable and therefore I'm going to up the cost than this resource. Because again, every uh, piece of knowledge, I think, and an idea has has the right to to be shared. Um, so I think from the finding part and the the challenges that I've been experiencing are around that. Um, also, we create a system that makes it such that only people with a certain income can can access certain resources, and that creates a further divide instead of really. Um, putting in knowledge into a communal pot so that everybody can learn and grow. Um, I know that that sounds a little broad a statement. Um, mm-hmm, I just I just find myself wondering, like something that I really appreciated um, from a talk that was given at the university by Rochelle Thibault um, mm-hmm. was more around uh, the community uh, rehabilitation uh, model and how a lot of the work that she's done over the years has been focused more on community and capacity building. For instance, the knowledge that she uh, shared on that particular day around building resilience and having an occupational diet that promotes resilience was something that she had learned from working with diverse communities. So it just really captured how beautiful it can be and how empowering and powerful um, it is when we actually put our our heads together. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that it's really important to do that, um, to share, share knowledge, share information, make it accessible so that it's easy to find. Um, and I think that the two of you are already um, getting a head start on, on that. Thank you for, <laughs> Thank for, you. for doing that, honestly. It's, it's wonderful. It's Thank wonderful. You. 
Cool. Thank you. I think this um, is a nice segue into my next question about why do why is there sometimes resistance when incorporating these new resources into a practice? I know you guys touched upon, um, you know, sometimes there's a lack of these culturally sensitive pieces or a lack of um, considerations. And maybe with these newfound resources, whether they be an actual document or an actual group of people, why is there sometimes resistance that we're facing in our profession? on incorporating different forms of resources and making them more accessible. I think unintentionally, it goes back to this hierarchy of what's valuable versus what isn't. Um, And I think it's something that we do very unintentionally and it's something that we're trained to do. So when you you touch on your assessment courses, for example, teaching you about the reliability and the validity. I'm, I'm not saying throw that out, throw that to the wayside, um, but we're so ingrained to think in that way, which is again, quite lovely and very helpful, but we forget how to translate that to other types of resources um, and do it in a way that is, that again, has that mm-hmm. open mind. Um, we are very research heavy <laughs> in yeah. Northern America. We're so research sure. heavy. Um, so I think I think that's that's one of the the baseline um, challenges. Mm-hmm. And the other I would say yeah. is that people just don't have access um, to the opportunities similar to what I have, where they're they're literally walking alongside the clients. The the structure mm-hmm. of our systems are set up. You know that person comes in for thirty minutes to 45 minutes, whereas I've spent almost an entire day with one of my clients um, because that's that's what the needs were at the time. So I got to see so much more. And they, to me, again, are the most valuable resource. Um, but we don't all have an opportunity to have to spend that much time with them and to, to really get mm-hmm. to know them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you, Sarah. I think that there's absolutely some some structural dimensions to this and some like institutional pieces around if you only have so much time, you've already found this one resource. It's something that, you know, may, maybe other professionals that you're working with are, are using. Um, the the shift to a, to a new one might might sort of create some mm-hmm. waves in a setting, um, especially if, you know, yeah. timelines are really tight. Um, so I could see that definitely being being a part of it. Um, and then something else I want to draw on that you were mentioning, Sarah, is this idea of instead of valuing potentially the the experiences of the the folks that we're we're working with and and that really being privileged, um, there being a, a real emphasis depending on the practice setting that you're working with. And I've I've worked in in a few like this where there's a real focus on more of a medical mm-hmm. model approach mm-hmm. um and 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 i think there have been times from what i've seen and what i've experienced especially when sometimes working in role emerging um settings where in order to show that ot is legitimate as as a role as a profession sometimes i've seen colleagues and I know that I've done this myself sort of like sliding into more like medical model um, 
language and justifications yeah. for for OT, and then and then drawing on the resources that are already being used in that setting to be like, see, we can use these as well. See how OT is justified through this very specific mm-hmm. medical model lens. Um, and so I think there's sort of this strategic element around trying to justify our role within a more neoliberalized um, mm-hmm. healthcare system, mm-hmm. which which is really challenging. And and I think that as OTs, we're we're really tasked with finding creative ways to to advocate for OT and making sure that that's always grounded in occupational justice and the best interests of the, mm-hmm. the folks that we're working it, with. It almost sounds like a bit of a balancing act to be able to advocate for your role by um, referring to research, but also remembering what occupational therapists do and what their goals are, which is to really help someone engage in what's meaningful to them. Um, so, mm-hmm. oh, sorry, did you have um, something you want to say? I was just going <laughs> to just oh. agree. <laughs> oh, sorry, Sarah, go ahead. <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say that, you know, when you think about, you know, speaking the language of the audience that you are um, kind of working with, you know, Carla touches on touched on needing to use research as a means of convincing someone that OT might be relevant for this context. You know, if that's the language that's needed in a particular meeting or, you know, with your supervisor, etc., you need to be able to speak in that way. Um, but you also need to think about how you kind of translate and, and modify your language to colleagues in the day-to-day mm-hmm. work, um, to your clients. And it's not that you're presenting yourself in a way that is not with integrity, mm-hmm. of course. Um, it's just a different type of language. And I think we need to kind of think about that. But as as Carla mentioned, it's catching yourself in the moments where you are, you know, promoting or perpetuating, you know, a, a, like colonialism, mm-hmm. for example, or Western mm-hmm. ideologies. Um, is the, who who developed this resource? And from what frame of thinking are they coming? Am I going to disregard the entire resource just because it's not written by someone with lived experience? Or am I going to disregard it because it's coming from a researcher? No, there are going to be values and value in some of the nuggets there. But you need to be very self-aware, I think, when you are looking for sifting through and selecting the resources. And I also think um, one of the things that I, I often tell my my students that I've had as a preceptor is if you're ever getting comfortable that's probably when you are um, going into the side of the profession that could be very um, dangerous I hate to say it it, in that that extreme way but I think you know Mm -hmm. some of the, the challenges of integrating and incorporating new resources or different types of resources into practice is that changes scary and it causes discomfort um and we are so Mm -hmm. good at running away from discomfort Um, yeah (laughs) obviously you want to think about it like is this discomfort an issue of of, of safety because that is the case then obviously stop where you are but is it discomfort because i don't know something or because this is a new territory Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. 
so yeah yeah and i think that i think that uh, again raises awareness about you know being reflexive and that's one of the key um like competencies that ot's need to have to be reflexive to take a second to to really ask ourselves those hard questions that do make us uncomfortable and to delve further into you know those those territories that we're not familiar with with fresh and open eyes and without all of these assumptions or um i guess influences mm-hmm. from you know past experiences so i think you know these are important conversations to have from the beginning of you know your career to all the way to the end again as lifelong learners as you know ref- being reflexive and just continuing to be well-rounded and inclusive of of everything whether it be a person a a, a resource a um perspective so thank you for you know continuously um reminding us to always go back to our roots as occupational therapists and we want to be mindful of your time because we know that you guys are both super busy um so we want to say thank you so much um for sharing everything that you did we really hope to collab with you again in the future and we're going to make sure to post um some of these um tidbits of information on our blog but until next time Anne-Marie and I say listen laugh and learn <laughs>